Chattanooga Choo Choo Track 29 Won't you give me a sign I can afford to board the Chattanooga Choo Choo I've got my fare You're listening to the You're Smarter Than Us podcast Asheville's premier soccer podcast Guys, welcome back to another Soccer and Sweet Tea crossover podcast. My name is Tim Blakicki, and I'm with You're Smarter Than Us. And I am Chris Ashley with Yeah, That Soccer Show covering Greenville FC. And guys, we're here today to basically talk about the soccer apocalypse that has occurred throughout the uh, D4, D3 landscape here in America um, Chris, do you, do you want to kind of give them a little bit of a recap of what's happened up to this point? Sure. Yeah. If you haven't been paying attention over the last week, um, there has been a situation down in Chattanooga that mirrors a little bit what has happened here in Greenville, uh, particularly back in the spring, but has maybe been even a little, little more painful for a lot of the fans down in Chattanooga. So Chattanooga FC just celebrated their 10th season. They've had a ton of success all in the NPSL, um, seemingly uh, a lot of their board and their administration has for a while been considering how can we move up? Because if you don't know a lot about Chattanooga FC, they are really a very, very high-end uh, team in the Division Four semi-pro amateur level, um, and I think they have been looking to try and move up for a while now. And it seems like they've had some conversations in the past with USL, with NISA, maybe even with some potential other options on the table. But uh, things have stalled and not worked out for for a variety of different reasons that aren't fully known to everybody. But uh, this season, in the midst of that, it seemed like a lot of chaos went down. The general manager of Chattanooga FC resigned Right around the time there were rumors that D3 was about to announce a team coming to Chattanooga. And then that subsequently happened uh, just a few days later. So right now you have a, a team that is going to be coming to Chattanooga to, to be a part of the USL D3 league that is not Chattanooga FC. There's While there are Chattanooga FC people who have been involved with Chattanooga FC for a long time who are going to be a part of this USL D3 team and administration the the primary investor and owner is a guy out of utah named bob martino so there is a little bit of of tension there there are folks who are who have been a part of the chattahooligans and the fan culture around chattanooga fc for a long time that feel very uh loyal and committed to that they feel like this is an outside person coming in to take over their city and try to build upon the goodwill that they have established And that feels a little painful. And so that has kind of been a little bit of the background that has sparked this firestorm this week. Yeah, this all happened. Well, on July 14th, Chattanooga played Atlanta Silverbacks in the Southeast final. Chattanooga lost six to five on PKs after a scoreless uh, regular time and extra time. And then this all happened on July 27th with a um, article from Soccer Takes that announced this. Uh, at the time, it was an unidentified investor, just like Chris said. It came out that it was Bob Martino. And the two board members that actually resigned the same day were Sean McDaniel, who was the general manager. He was a founder. And he was actually also on the board for the NPSL and resigned that also. 
after the fact, the NPSL also kind of released a statement saying, well, now it makes sense why we haven't heard from Sean in a while. Um, the other board member, Bill Nuttall, uh, he resigned and he actually gave an interesting article back in November of 2017, where he spoke about CFC looking to go D3 in 2019. He talked about the USL, the NISA were both kind of courting them and that the major hurdle at that time was the fact that Chattanooga was operating on an $800,000 budget and that for a USL it was usually about $1.5 million. Um, as soon as both these board members resigned, Chairman Tim Kelly responded that there was nothing other than we knew a philosophical rift existed. We certainly feel betrayed, but we're relieved not to have that rift anymore. Um, the fallout from all of this was the very next day, the stand with Chatta hashtag came out. It started popping up on TIFOs and posters and on Twitter accounts in Detroit, Portland, Oregon. Um, it's, it's subsequently just flooded soccer Twitter. And on July 29th, the Chatta hooligans even released a statement. Um, well, I guess a Twitter thread where they said they had spoken with the CFC board and the CFC board, you know, threw it out there that they felt they were progressing towards pro ball. And a lot of this came out of the summit for American soccer that happened this past March. Chris, what, what is your impression of this? Where, why, why do you think that the um, Chattanooga of all places has become the battleground for uh, soccer in America? Well, like I said, like I alluded to before, you know, all of this that's happening in Chattanooga has already happened in Greenville. But with Greenville, it's a completely different situation. I know we'll talk about that a little bit later in that we didn't have the history that Chattanooga already has in the soccer world. Chattanooga FC has been around for a decade and is and is honestly probably one of the beacons uh, of the NPSL. And I think a lot of people, when they think of the NPSL and, and want to think of teams that are synonymous with the NPSL and with even lower division, division four, semi-pro amateur soccer, Chattanooga FC is always one of the first teams that comes up in conversation because they have grown a supporters group and a fan base that, you know, I think they average somewhere in the range of like 3,500 fans per game, which is just astronomical. They have actually hosted Atlanta United. They've hosted FC Dallas for friendlies. They've hosted the U.S. men's national team had a friendly there. So they are really, in a lot of ways, this, this beacon of soccer in small town America. And I think because of that, there is a lot of, and, and you know this too, Tim, being involved with Asheville City, there is a certain level to which this quote unquote grassroots soccer that happens at the lower divisions, you do feel a sense of ownership and investment with these teams. You get to know the players really well because of the smaller structure. You get to know the the owners and the management super well that, you know, you count them as friends even. And so I think whenever someone from the outside, even if it's not necessarily an outsider, like is the case in Greenville, you have a, you have a, a, a Greenville guy to the core coming in, but especially in Chattanooga, I think it was just kind of a real, a perfect storm of a situation where the investor's not even from Chattanooga. And it, it's really easy to point the finger at this outside person coming in from a league that, you know, people, one of the things that exists in lower division soccer is there's a lot of fans who feel like major league soccer and 
the USL as a as an organization are kind of the the big money bad guy, um, and so that's really kind of the it, it it feels more like the the small business versus Walmart coming in. You know, it's you want to support local, you want to support the thing that that you have the connection to, not this big massive corporation. I think sometimes, maybe even unfairly so, uh, a lot of lower division fans look at Major League Soccer and the United Soccer League in that light. So I think when you have a team that that has had the history and has the fan support that Chattanooga FC has and that that, that team has meant to that community, when you have someone seemingly from the outside that's a part of this big money, bad guy corporation league coming in, it, it's a it's a perfect storm to 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 fight this fight. That's where the battleground mentality comes from, I think. Yeah, I think your Walmart analogy is spot on because that exact, that's exactly how I kind of frame it in my head. I do think it's a bit disingenuous to think that this investor from out of town is um, carpet bagging, as some have suggested. Sure. Um, but, but by all accounts, it doesn't seem it, it just seems like he's the bank account. It doesn't necessarily sound like he independently worked with the USL to identify a market that he could invest in. It actually seems like it might be the other way around. Um, and these board members who have potentially resigned may have reached out, uh, which is kind of creating the tension. And again, goes back to Tim Kelly saying that they feel a bit betrayed because while these two board members were still actively seeing Chattanooga develop a season in the NPSL, go into the playoffs, identify offseason plans, and theoretically going through that summit and then preparing for maybe a jump. And we'll kind of talk in about the different options that they had at their feet a little later. But was Sean kind of, you know, massaging the usl on the side also i i think that's where a lot of that confusion comes in so if anything i i do still think this is coming from inside the community it's still chattanooga pro is a chattanooga kind of born and bred i think the disagreement is the the method with which pro ball is coming to chattanooga yeah and i, I think that's i think that's one of the things that that has been maybe miscategorized in, in the fact that this is so different than the Greenville situation. I really don't think it is that different because like you said, I, I do think Bob Martino is really a, a person that maybe USL had identified, or maybe he had reached out to USL in a general sense of like, Hey, I would love to bring the USL to Utah or I'm interested in soccer and, and, and in that realm of having some kind of ownership in a team. But like you say, I really think that this is this really is a situation where you had some folks seemingly and this is reading the tea leaves a little bit, um, just going off of some articles and some quotes from different people within the organization. But it seems like there's a there's a big contingent within Chattanooga FC that wants to move up and maybe even Tim Kelly's a part of that. But the options that have come along for one reason or another have stalled out. And I think there's a there's you're always going to have this in a situation where a large group of people want to do something, but the timing is always going to, it's always going to weigh on some more than it's going to weigh on others. Some people are antsy and want to get to the point and get to the place they want to be while others are more like, let's wait and see, let's get the right thing rather than the, than the first thing. Um, and so I think that's what happened here. I think you had some guys that just were so antsy to go and, and move up that they saw this opportunity. They, they seemingly, 
you know, like you, like you said, I, I think maybe they were the ones that are, were approaching USL saying, Hey, we want, we want this team. We want to, we want to go pro here. And we've met with you guys with Chattanooga FC, but obviously that's not going to work out, but what would it look like to bring a team here anyway? But maybe we can't bankroll it. Maybe you could help us help connect us with an investor. And I think maybe that's more what has happened here. But I think in saying that, you know, like I said, it's really easy to point to the guy from outside, but I really think the issues are, are within the Chattanooga community. Well, I also, going back to the method with which you move up, I, I think if we kind of reverse engineer what has happened here, going back to that Summit for American Soccer in March, where I believe 65 different clubs attended, and at the end of it, 35 sent out a joint statement with five pillars, basically, that they said, this is what we believe moving forward needs to happen for success of soccer in America. And a few of those pillars were that clubs should be the primary uh, entity in our soccer ecosystem, and we support the idea of supporter ownership. And those two things, I think, are paramount in kind of framing this conversation on seeing which, you know, which side the board fell on each of it, because uh, I think what Tim, even though, you know, Tim Kelly has mentioned time and time again, everybody in Chattanooga wants to move up. Everybody in Chattanooga wants to become professional. And even the parlance of uh, professional, you know, I think there's this semantics happening of Either professional is the way you run your operation or professional just means you actually pay your players and both sides are kind of having fun playing that game. But D3, I think, is really what we're talking about here. And Tim even said we want to move up, but I think it goes to that, you know, people are viewing MLS and USL as a closed system that creates franchises as opposed to the supporters being part of the ownership or the community being part of the ownership and moving up kind of organically that way, which I think is what has stopped the USL moves and the NASL moves. Yeah. And I think, I think, like you said, I think it's more of an issue of control potentially, not, yes, not to exactly. say that, not, not to say that they want to be controlling, but I think, I, I think it's a vision of club based control where the club has a lot of autonomy versus league base. And I think you see this more with major league soccer than even with the USL level, where if you're, if you're a team in major league soccer, you know, you have to use a certain manufacturer for jerseys. Everybody has Adidas. You have to have a certain standard of X, Y, and Z to be a part of this league. Whereas USL is not quite as restrictive, I don't think, but I do think there is a level to which, uh, the organization is trying to have a standard across the board that everybody meets, but honestly, I'm not so sure that's a bad thing from my perspective. I really think that one of the issues in having any kind of real structure and growth below Major League Soccer in the United States has been just a lack of organization. You have so many people wanting a slice of the pie that ultimately, you know, it's one of those things where like you can have you can have a million great ideas, but if you don't have somebody to funnel it into a into a cohesive structure, then the whole thing's going to fall in on itself. And that's kind of what it feels like soccer has done for the last 20 years. It, it's been this, this uh, bubbling up of different leagues trying to, trying to be successful. And you, you see what happened to uh, the NASL. You know, they, they were Division two. They were as high as they could be with, a, with aspirations of getting up to the D1 level. And yet the whole thing caves in on itself because it's, it's a little unorganized and there's so many other pe people trying to grab a piece of the pie. Yeah, what was really interesting about the NASL was that it 
it was the structure of the league that kind of fell apart rather than the teams themselves, because some of the teams are super familiar in terms of the Jacksonville Armada, Miami FC, who's playing for the NPSL championship tonight. Uh, the Atlanta Silverbacks were part of the NASL and have kind of fallen back down. Now, that said, the Minnesota United FC and Montreal Impact were part of the NSA NASL and have moved up into MLS. So the independent club structures succeeded to a certain degree, obviously some folded, but it does, I I think this is the idea of the carpetbacker. This is where a lot of the Chattahooligans and a lot of the fans in Detroit and Portland are having an issue with this of, you know, we have built something that is sustainable. We have been around for 10 years. You know, we're we're having Serie A teams come play friendlies over here. We're, you know, getting 18,000 people out for a final against the New York Cosmos B back in 2015 in Chattanooga. We don't need your structure to succeed. We can do it unto ourselves. So why sacrifice that autonomy for you know what what guarantee are you giving us that the structure you're going to provide us is going to be fail safe because i'm sure that's the exact same thing that the nisa said when they were trying to get up off the ground which chattanooga actually i believe uh, said that they would be part of that if they could reach their mandated self-mandated eight to 12 teams and they can't get past i think five at the present moment right Um, and then the yeah, NASL think, also fell in upon itself. So why attach? What what makes the USL D three any different? If if right. we can do this ourselves, and you're saying no, let us do it for you. It, you know why give up that autonomy? Yeah, and I think that's a situation where you know with with these other leagues that are that are potentially growing up this this nisa type thing everybody wants to be you know team eight nine ten eleven nobody wants to be team one two or three (laughs) because there's you know when you're when you're one of the first teams you're really putting your neck out there hoping that the rest of the the rest of the league comes and solidifies around you whereas if you hold off and you wait till till the league's basically already sustainable and you're kind of the last nail in the coffin that's that's an easy position to be in i think the difference is when you look at what the leagues can provide and and the fan outrage of, hey, we've done this independently, we've grown this ourselves, that's all well and good from a fan perspective. But the reality of it is all these teams are businesses and they're all out to make money. That is just the bottom line. You, If you don't make money and you're not profitable, you're not going to be around long. And that's what you have seen happen with a lot of a lot of clubs that honestly had some tradition and had some history and yet have fallen by the wayside because guess what? If you don't make money, you can't have, you can't have an organization. You don't have people you can pay, whether that's players or just the people running the team. I mean, if you can't pay people, it's going to cease to exist. None of these teams are running uh, nonprofits or volunteer organizations. They're all out to make, uh, make some money. And I think that's where the league structure that, somewhere like the USL can come in and say, Hey, we have kind of a, a a formula that we know is going to help you be profitable. And we have the, the backing and the, the structure in place that has helped us be successful at the D two level currently and formerly at the D three level and at the PDL level. I mean, they have a system and a structure and an organization in place that I think is going to help teams remain profitable and stay for the long run. And I think that's, 
I think that's something that gets lost a little bit from the fan outrage side where we just see it as the grassroots, the thing that we're a part of that we feel like, like I talked about earlier, as a fan of a lower division team, you feel like you almost have ownership in the team. But the reality of it is, unless there is some kind of ownership, fan ownership system, which not many teams have at the moment, you don't actually have ownership of the team and you, you're not living and dying, you know, on whether the team turns a profit or not. Well, I think it, it also goes back to that risk, though. And I, I, I feel if I were to put Asheville in Chattanooga shoes after eight years where I or 10 years where I pictured Asheville hopefully being, you know, uh, Tormenta FC, FC Tucson, Madison, even Greenville to a certain degree, they're not taking a risk like they're they're coming in at the ground level of this Toronto FC two. Another USL D3, you know, they're they're kind of a unique circumstance unto themselves, but they're not going to fail. They'll they'll find a home, you know, no matter what happens to the league. If Chattanooga attached, you know, Chattanooga FC attached their wagon to this star and it fell into itself, again, they've they've risked their solvency for what amounts to a, a bucket of lies, you know, promises that weren't kept. So I, I understand the, the not, not being scared, but I understand the hesitation of, you know, we're doing all right because they are, I've, I just listened to an interview earlier that spoke about how they're, they're in the black, they're making profits. Why risk that for something that's unproven straight out of the gate? And I don't know if that's what Tim Kelly was thinking, but I get it. And so I also yeah. kind of understand Sean saying, I do think this will work. And I, you know, if we need to start something off just ground level, let's take that risk. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, I think that's always going to be a situation in business where you're going to have some people who want to, want to ride it out and, and maybe wait for the right thing, but, but take a mitigated risk. And you're going to have folks that, that maybe see the potential and see the future and want to pivot in a way that, potentially will pay off in, in multitude for them. And, and I used an analogy in the article I wrote about this whole, whole mess at Soccer and Sweet Tea this week where I talked about Netflix. You know, Netflix got started as this DVD rental company that would, would mail you DVDs through the mail and you could set up your queue and they would, you know, they would just send you, when you'd send them one back, they'd send you the next one. And they were trying to compete with the likes of Blockbuster, which at the time was the the biggest thing around everybody on a Friday. I mean, I remember being a kid every Friday we would, after school, we would go to Blockbuster and we'd rent two or three movies for the weekend to watch. That was the way that people consumed uh, media at that point. <laughs> and Netflix was trying to just get a piece of the pie. And they, after a couple of years, they realized like this DVD thing's not really working. We're, we're about to go under. Let's try to sell ourselves to, to Blockbuster. And they, they basically went to Blockbuster and said, we, we would love for you guys to buy us and absorb us as a company. And then we could add this, this level to what you're doing. Blockbuster said, hey, thanks, but no thanks. We're good. We want to ride this out. We're comfortable where we are. So Netflix decides to make a pivot and says, hey, this, this thing called YouTube is really starting to grow and take off. I wonder if there's a way we could offer movies instead of via DVD we could offer people to come online and stream these. And now you look at where they are. Most people don't know what Blockbuster is because it's long been gone and bankrupt from riding it out. And yet Netflix is the biggest, one of the biggest companies in the world right now. And I think that's, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen in Chattanooga, but I am saying like, I think that's, that's a, 
a really good analogy to see the different perspectives in business of, hey, I don't know if this is a risk we really want to take. We feel comfortable where we are. We want to ride it out versus Netflix, who really, like you say, at that point has nothing to lose. They're, they're going to go out of business if they keep their same model. So they say, let's pivot. Let's take a huge risk on this thing that we don't know if it's going to pay off or not. And, and you see the results. I think the only problem I have with that metaphor, though, is that Netflix had to pivot because they were going under anyways. Chattanooga sure. isn't going under. So Chattanooga doesn't have to pivot yet. And I think part of what Tim Kelly kind of, again, reading between the lines of what he's been saying is that, why, again, why risk solvency? If we've done this unto ourselves, you know, thinking like a business hasn't gotten soccer very far in America. You know, everything ever since the first incarnation of the NASL, they've, they've tried to run it like a business. You know, even the MLS back in the day, they they tried to run it like a business and it didn't it only got us so far. Now, I think, you know, I know you're a fan and what Atlanta United's doing is completely unique. And I mean, goodness gracious, they they have really tapped into something there. And yes, they are running that like a business. But all of the lower leagues, I mean, there's a reason they keep folding. There's a reason they keep making business mistakes. And I think what Tim and, you know, the board members who have remained in Chattanooga are saying is we're not treating this like a business. We started nine years ago with this community message. We've built it up. You know, we average 4,000 fans, which, again, I, I think somebody in our Slack channel made the point that, you know, that is a drop in the bucket when it comes to what actually, you know, makes a team succeed. But when you can pull 12,000 out for a friendly and 18,000 out for a final, who says that you can't eventually do that slowly, you know, as you build it up? So, yeah, and it, it'll be interesting to see if they if they wind up having to, to pivot now that this pro team is coming in and, and you've got competition. And I know that there are a lot of very, very, very vocal fans who have said this team's going to fail because we're not going to support it. But you got to remember. And one of the things I've seen in Greenville is the, the two communities that are, that are supporting Greenville FC versus Greenville pro soccer. While there is some crossover there in the middle, there are also plenty of people who are only going to support one team or the other. And the two, the two groups are very different. And there are people that will go out to watch a quote unquote professional team, minor league team play in their city that might not go watch a semi-pro amateur team. And that's not anything against what semi-pro and amateur is doing. It's a completely different environment, a completely different atmosphere and a completely different draw in terms of fan base. But there, you are going to have a certain segment of the public that are going to support a, a professional team that has their city's name on it just just from that standpoint but do you think the casual fan understands the difference you know here in Asheville, we get about 2500 fans <clears throat> out well if we sell out we get 2500 fans i'm willing to bet out of those 2500 fans if you did an exit poll as they're leaving the stadium after they've seen the ancillary kind of accoutrements you know of the beer the food trucks that go on the um, the railing that uh, the team puts up and as you, you know, as fans are leaving after the game, you say, you know, did you just watch amateur ball or did you watch professional? I would say sure. that well over 50% would say professional. And out of mm -hmm. that other 50%, I think 50% of that do doesn't even understand the difference. 
So I don't know that necessarily, I think this is part of where presenting yourself as professional makes you professional. Professional in terms of paying your player. Yes, the quality on the field might go up because you're able to recruit a different uh, caliber of player. But I don't know that the casual fan, which is often in Chattanooga, Greenville, you know, we're, we're discussing the Milltown operatives are what percentage of the people that are going to Greenville FC's games. The casual fan is what out of that 4,000 as opposed to the Chattahooligans that's going to Chattanooga's games. What percentage of that casual fan understands the difference of what they're seeing? Or do they just appreciate the presentation of what's happening? Sure. No. And I, I agree with that. In fact, I would say it's it's even higher than that 50 percent because I've seen it happen here in Greenville when Greenville Pro Soccer announces, hey, we're bringing professional soccer to upstate. A lot of people were like, oh, this is Greenville FC making another <laughs> announcement. Like there literally people did not realize that it was a, a different team. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think there is a ton of confusion. There was obviously a lot of upra- outrage at that point from people who were who had, you know, Greenville FC had not played a game yet when that announcement was made, but they had already started to attract some fans and some people were frustrated about the phrasing that we're going to bring professional soccer to the upstate and people were upset because they felt like we already have a pro team. And I I agree with you. I think there is a certain level of the casual fan doesn't care, nor do, do they know. But the only reason I think that it is, uh, worth noting is, like I said, I think that the crowds you're going to bring just from the just from the standpoint of like, let me use Greenville as an example because it's the one I know the best. But you have Greenville FC who is owned and operated by one family who is not necessarily from Greenville, but they've kind of adopted Greenville. But the, the day to days are run by uh, a pair of brothers in their young to mid 20s. And it's very, you know, it's very startup business, grassroots, very young. And, and they don't have while Marco has quite the Rolodex of, of MLS players and, and people that can uh, you know, shout them out and give them support, they don't necessarily have the Rolodex or contacts in the city that, the, that say the Irwins do who are running Greenville Pro Soccer. They've been around in the community for years and years and years. Uh, Joe Irwin, the, the, the chairman of, of Greenville Pro Soccer, started one of the biggest ad companies in the, in the country uh, right in Greenville. And he, so he's been really successful. His name's on buildings all over the upstate. You know, it's, it's a different, it's a different vibe and, and they have contacts that they'll have contacts and groups of people that are their core fans coming to games that probably don't even know Greenville FC exists and wouldn't go anyway. So I, I get your point. There's not much of a distinction in terms of the casual fans, but I also think one of the things we've been talking about in the Slack channel is I think if people enjoy soccer, NPSL is hard because you get you get seven games a year at home and then you're, you know, over over two months and then you you feel like, man, I just whetted my appetite. So I think that's where I see the benefit of having both teams here in Greenville, at least, is being able to to enjoy soccer for a longer time throughout the year. And then even in those couple months in the summer, having it really concentrated where I get I get to double up. Okay, but where are you going to double up? Because this also goes back to the Chattanooga situation. What's happening with Finley Stadium? There's been this really unique situation Mm, where obviously Sean was also on the inside of this. Now, I don't know if this is a yearly lease renewal that happened, so everybody knew it was going to happen. But Chattanooga, well, Chattanooga FC, lease is up with Finley Stadium. It is by far the only professional Mm. stadium 
probably in the city. There's obviously rec fields that would look something kind of like Emerald Force would be playing on. Um, but there's not like a mid-level stadium, almost like Memorial, which seats 2,500. Obviously, there's going to be a battle now of that. Um, in Greenville, from what I understand, also Greenville FC signed a one-year lease. Uh, I know Doug Thurwins have uh, designs to build a stadium eventually. You guys talked about that on the podcast you did with him. But what happens next year? Right. Yeah. And I think that's going to be an interesting thing. I mean, I would not, I have told plenty of people, I wouldn't be surprised to see Greenville pro soccer be at Furman next year. If they were able to, to secure those rights over, uh, over Greenville FC. And honestly, from Furman's perspective, as long as they can work out the scheduling with their own needs using the stadium, it makes a lot more sense to lease it to a team where you're going to get twice as many games in there and therefore you can charge twice as much and have that, those guaranteed dates. That's one of the things Doug talked about in terms of building a stadium that it would be for more than just this team, because it's not feasible to have a stadium and build it for, you know, 14 dates a year, 16 dates a year. That doesn't make sense. So from Furman's perspective, I think Greenville pro soccer has a lot more leverage in terms of trying to secure a spot which would then leave Greenville FC, you know, looking for another location. The good thing about Greenville is we have a ton of really great high school stadiums around. I mean, there's not there's not a lack of places to play. Now, granted, Furman's really nice. It's soccer specific. There's nothing else that happens on that field but soccer and it's built just for that environment. It's really a perfect place for a team like Greenville FC or like Greenville Pro Soccer to play whether permanently or in the interim. So yeah, that would be an interesting thing. And I, and I really feel for the folks down in Chattanooga because I know that is going to be whenever that shoe drops, that is, you, you think it's bad now. It, it will really, they'll burn the internet down. I feel like, <laughs> or at least the aquarium. Um, yeah. <laughs> so Chris, I, I know a little bit about this, but could you possibly describe a little bit more about the NPSL pro that has been kind of thrown out there? I, I know almost nothing about it other than it is something that has been talked about. Um, I, from what I gather, and I think the reason I don't have much information, I just don't think there's a lot of information out there. I think it's, I think it's one of those things that's like, oh, this is a good idea. We should really think about this. We should really press it. And th- in fact, I think I saw maybe even yesterday somebody connected to Chattanooga saying like, if this is ever going to happen, it's got to happen soon yeah, or else was, it's just Tim not. Kelly. It was such a yeah. strange, like 10 o'clock at night tweet. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Like if it's going to happen, we got to do this. We got to get rolling. Cause like it's, it's about to be out of off the table essentially because the way that D three is moving and kind of taking over these markets. Um, but from what I understand, NPSL pro is, is essentially just, offering some teams like a Chattanooga FC, like a Detroit, the opportunity to be professional, pay some players, have a longer season. You're not reliant on, on the collegiate players necessarily as much. Um, so I think it's, I mean, honestly, I think it's not really all that different than what some of these other organizations are, are looking at in terms of structure and season length. I think the difference would be like we talked about earlier is maybe more club over league uh, yeah. in terms of in terms of ownership and running and, and structure and organization, which I think is what Chattanooga FC is is holding out hope for, and I think is why they have kind of rebuffed some of these other options that have been on the table in the past. 
Yeah, I, I think you're 100% right. And I think that's also, I kind of mentioned this in the Slack channel again, about almost like a suicide pack, about how, you know, I, I can completely see Chattanooga, Detroit, you know, some of those clubs that signed up for the um, NISA that, you know, again, fell on unto itself. And not only did that fall into itself, but Peter Wilt, who basically founded that, he was the... I think the first GM of the Chicago Fire, he eventually was like president of the Indy 11, but he was the one really trying to organize that. He actually left it to go to the USL D3 Madison Pro. So not only did that fall apart, but I mean, even USL D3 kind of absorbed (laughs) the founder of it. But I think these NPSL clubs that have done it themselves, they wanted to create a league that basically they did themselves too. So this is something that when I heard about it, um, it was actually Chris Davis with soccer and sweet tea that told me, you know, really kind of the uh, mechanics behind it. It just sounded like the perfect fit for Asheville because there wasn't going to be these um, stadium requirements. There wasn't going to be a per se budget requirement. You know, you could, if, if you could fill your team with amateur players, you know, much like the NPSL go for it. You could have an all college, you know, obviously the college is kind of off the table, but there wasn't going to be age limits. There weren't going to be this. There wasn't going to be that. The clubs were all going to be kind of democratic in the sense that each one would have a vote when it comes to structuring um, pro rel. I think this, that summit for American soccer, that's what I think Tim was trying to develop. I think he had 65 clubs there, and I think 35 of them were like, yes, we can do this. Now, obviously, the NPSL has its own barriers that they need to jump. You know, there was playoff teams this past year that had to do like GoFundMes just to travel for the playoffs. Now, kind of extrapolate that a little bit further. You can't do GoFundMes every week to travel to play your next game. You know, if Asheville's trying to get to Detroit, if Chattanooga's trying to get to Miami, these are significant barriers that I think they needed to figure out. But I think the one unifying aspect of all of this was that the teams that had stepped up and said, yes, we think we can make this jump, weren't teams that were depending on investors. They were teams that said, we know we can do this because we've been doing this. We have not had to run a GoFundMe. We, you know, Detroit's sitting up there with 9,000 fans a game. Yes, again, a drop in the bucket of what, you know, some USL teams do and clearly what some MLS teams do, but that's not much less than what some MLS teams do. And they travel, you know, the Chattahooligans, every away game they play, they're having 40, 50 supporters travel for those games if you bump up the level of competition in an NPSL pro, I, I, I can see the city developing around them, the fan base developing around them. If, if you're having Detroit come to Chattanooga once a year and create a rivalry there, does that 4,000 grow to 8,000? Um, and it's a longer season, much like you were talking about. Maybe I'm being naive. I, I am extremely guilty of regularly being naive, but... <laughs> There's there's so much in that that I see in terms of grassroots that I think could provide substantial progress and sustainability moving forwards, as opposed to this investor model, this uh, uh, league owned structure that, you know, I mean, since when when did the NASL 68 was the first year 
there's a reason they continue to fail. And yes, MLS has struck gold to a certain degree, but there's a reason these D2, D3, D4s continue to fold in on themselves. And yeah, maybe, and I, maybe it's I think that, it, that, that lens that they've been trying to do it through. Yeah, and I think that's, a, <laughs> it's so hard because I think all of us who are fans of some of these NPSL teams and fans of lower division soccer in general, like I think in a in an ideal world, in a in a naive world, in, a, in this utopian world, like yes, grassroots soccer is a roaring success and can support paying players and paying staff and traveling across the country and bringing teams in and and I think that's that's all great in theory, but I wonder if you know I just look I I can only speak to what I'm intimately familiar with and that's just being in, uh, involved and around. Uh, Greenville FC this season. And I just wonder if that's even financially feasible for most teams. Now, I'm not saying that a Chattanooga FC or a Detroit FC doesn't have the backing or power to do, it, but I do know one of the things, one of the things that the Carzales brothers uh, talked to me about in terms of when I did the year in review for them was that one of their biggest difficulties, one of the things that kept them up at night was before the season going out and trying to get these sponsors to, to help fund the team for the season. And I can't imagine the pressure to do that on an exponential level when you're thinking about having to travel much, much di greater distances and then pay players and do it for twice as long in the year. I, I mean, you, you think that kept you up now in, in PSLs it is. Imagine having to do it with an exponentially larger budget need. So... But do you not think those opportunities would grow with the club? Obviously, Chattanooga, their first year, they they didn't have VW as a sponsor. They they grew into that. VW saw an opportunity to say, "Oh wait, we need to you know we need to hook ourselves to this wagon. It's growing. This is an opportunity." Um, I don't know much about Greenville's sponsor, but I know Highwire here in Asheville. That was one of the smartest things I think any business in Nashville has done in an extremely long time. Yes, it's only eight home games for the men, but look, I, I can't imagine they, well, again, I can't speak to this, but I, in my own head, I can't imagine that the sponsorship deal per se doubled when the women's team came in, but that's now 14 home games. Um, and, you know, they're almost the exclusive uh, beer at the games. So they have to, especially at 2000 people per game, they have to be making their money back in spades just from that sponsorship deal. If you think of more games, more opportunities along those lines, yes, maybe, you know, VW is not selling that many more cars if you double the amount of games, but there's mm -hmm. still that opportunity to then go court another business in town as those opportunities sure. kind of arise. Sure. Yeah. And I, I'm not saying that it wouldn't grow with teams. I guess my, I guess my thought is how many teams ha have the support and have grown to a spot at this point to make the jump to an NPSL pro, I, you know, I think Chattanooga for sure is one of those teams that's in that, <clears throat> excuse me, in one of those positions and a Detroit is in those positions, but uh, Greenville having one season of their belt, you know, they were one of the 35 teams to sign this thing. And if that was kind of the basis of, hey, here's the teams that would that would potentially be a part of this NPSL Pro, I don't know that Greenville has grown. Uh, I mean, obviously, like the, the first season, people committed not knowing whether it would be success or not. And it's been much greater of a success than I think anybody anticipated. But at the same time, it's 
it's a lot harder to make that jump even for those extra, just from a business perspective, even for those extra games because of the same, because even if you're bringing in the same amount of people for twice as many games, you're not, you're not putting your advertisement on that many more eyeballs because it's the same crowd essentially. And I, and I get, it doesn't necessarily work like that. And that's really individual businesses have to make those decisions for themselves. But that's where I think the benefit of having Volkswagen, this massive multinational company that probably has, you know, a good marketing budget and even Greenville with Greenville hospital system, which I mean, they sponsor Clemson football, they sponsor all kinds of things. So I'm sure they have some, the, the capital was probably not even a blip on their radar, but I would be afraid for teams like an Asheville with a small local brewery, this high wire brewery, but that, yeah, they might have the extra capital, but I don't know that it's, it's as expendable as it is for some of these big corporations. So that's where I, that's where I feel like I don't know that I, I think there's potential for it to grow, but some of these younger teams that haven't necessarily built up the equity that Chattanooga has over 10 seasons, I don't know that they would be ready to make that jump right away. Yeah. And, and I think you're right. <clears throat> that's all. I, I think we just got back to the root of what is frustrating Chattahooligans so much is that they do, they did it. They succeeded. They, they earned it. You know, and that's not that's what they didn't want to risk. I'm not saying I completely agree. Now, I think part of what's been really interesting about this whole situation is that I I don't think uh, Chattanooga Pro meant for their announcement to come out the way that it did, especially with an article from, an, you know, a reporter, because they obviously weren't prepared for the backlash. And so far, this entire conversation has been framed by the Chattahooligans and by um, Chattanooga FC. Mm. I I am so interested, you know, over the MLS All-Star, that's where the USL D3 had their, uh, they called them the, you know, the equivalent of like the midwinter um, meeting. And I still think they're on the back foot. They, they have put absolutely nothing out there. So they are either insanely cocky about their positioning here or they just they don't have a game plan moving forwards. And I think every day that Chattanooga FC continues to be allowed to frame the narrative, I think it's just putting them at more of a deficit. Again, unless they have some sort of card up their sleeve that once they lay it down, and maybe that's the Finley lease. Maybe it's um, another defection off the board. Maybe it's some sort of announcement that's really going to kind of reshape that landscape. But I, I'm not seeing anything coming from them. Whereas, you know, with um, in Greenville, I think Greenville, even though they very slowly rolled everything out, I think they've done a better job handling the narrative and handling how they want the city to perceive them coming in especially compared to Greenville FC. Yeah. And I think that was something in Greenville that I think Greenville and Chattanooga actually had similar situations where I think the league's hand was forced a little bit in making, making an announcement maybe before they would have wanted to. I mean, I think Chad, I don't, you know, it's hard to say, like, I don't know if USL was already planning to make this announcement this week in Chattanooga, but it seems like once that report comes out and the cat's out of the bag and then your, your general manager resigns, like at that point, you got to do something. You can't just leave that hanging because then it's going to fester. And, and honestly, I don't know if it could have been worse, but it maybe it could have been worse, but I think Greenville, a similar situation happened where I don't know that USL would have made Greenville the, the third team in the league, but all of a sudden you get this NPSL team coming in that you didn't know was coming in and you, you got to do something to say, Hey, we're here too. 
And I think even the Greenville pro soccer folks have said like, you know, maybe the timing wasn't exactly what they would have wanted. They would have preferred to have the brand in place and be able to, to, to un- unroll everything at once. But at the same time, they've done a good job of letting it, letting the initial frustration and anger die down a little bit, you know, let the wounds scab over a little bit and then work to ingratiate themselves to the community here in Greenville. And I think they've actually done a, a phenomenal job here in Greenville. And I think if I'm guessing, I think that I think that that will happen a little bit in Chattanooga. I think that the initial outrage is always going to be, you know, I said it. I started the article with it. This is 2018. This is what we do. We get we get frustrated and we immediately react because we have this this platform that can go out to everybody that'll that'll put an eye on it immediately. And we plant our flag and we don't really take time to to think and and try to rationalize and reason and think through these things like you and I are doing in this conversation, just talking to one another. Because honestly, I have found more times than I would be willing to admit that I have found myself on the wrong end of something after talking it out with somebody. I mean, that's what I love about our, our Slack channel is people can throw out a hot take and, and people will talk each other off the ledge, which is nice. Well, except Seth, because Seth is just wrong about all of his opinions. <laughs> but um, no, and I, I don't I actually think we're having such a civil conversation about that. I, I don't know if it's coming across that you and I actually completely disagree on this. Um, But the civil discourse is potentially a way to come into the middle and and it's happening in Greenville. And I think, you know, you've been a fantastic moderator. I know I see, you know, again, we we keep talking about the Slack channel, but it's pretty amazing. You guys should join it. Um, There's a lot of Milltown operatives slash Greenville FC fans that are very upset. You've maintained a very neutral, you know, hey, guys, let's shake this out sort and see what happens sort of vibe. I don't know if that's going to ever happen in Chattanooga. Like, I think the way this is shook out, I think the way Sean handled it, the way I think Bill handled it. And even though I agree with Tim, I don't think Tim's handling it correctly either. But again, if he, you know, if there's feelings of like betrayal and, and, you know, the, this aggression will not stand. That's for you, Chris. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know that that will ever moderate back into yeah, let's let's figure something out because you do see other NPSL teams working with USL teams. You know, just this past season in the Southeast, you saw um, Nashville. Is it Nashville SC? Yeah, Inter Nashville and Nashville SC and loan players down into mm-hmm. Inter Nashville. You know, I kind of made the analogy where it's one thing when it's one thing when you. Uh, grow up so you know if in in atlanta for example if something big already exists and you give them a craft option underneath it you know if, if you have a budweiser and you're you bring in a smaller brewery underneath it nobody feels offended but just like your walmart analogy if it happens the other way if a small brewery proves that people will come out and drink beer and enjoy the limelight and then budweiser comes in that's where feelings get hurt. That's where the backlash happens. And I, that's what's happened in Chattanooga. It's not happening that way in Greenville, which I think will be an interesting test case. And as far as I can tell in these other cities, Tormenta, Tucson, Madison, uh, Toronto's a, again, a unique case. It's also not necessarily happening there. So your article this week, again, was just so fantastic because I, you really framed it as who knows what's going to happen in Chattanooga? 
Greenville's unique too because they're happening side by side. So toes aren't necessarily getting stepped on yet. I did an interview with Ryan Kelly a couple weeks ago where he clearly thought toes were getting stepped on. Decisions were being made. Now, Ryan works so closely with Marco and his brothers that I wonder, I wonder if they had again that almost like packed together of hey let's let's do this for five years and then move up together and if you know as far as i know and and this is kind of the kicker is that sean and tim were instrumental in creating asheville fc or asheville sc and likewise in greenville yeah exactly that's what i was going to get to is you know opening the books explaining how to do this and saying you know when when our first year this is what these are the decisions we made we're going to kick your butt on the pitch, but hey, this is this is how you need to proceed forwards to try to get to where Chattanooga is. And then to uh, this is, again, the feelings of betrayal, because if there was a, a informal pact of, you know, we signed this soccer summit thing, we're going to do this together eventually. And then someone got impatient that that sets that back somebody made a great analogy in the slack channel of also like wicked weed here in Asheville. wicked weed was a nationally recognized craft brewery in town that kind of not only did they do the best stuff in town but they positioned themselves as a leader for independent brewing in the Asheville area they created a market that other breweries kind of built up off of they they to a certain degree kind of reached down and helped pull people up and then sold out and left kind of a market in disarray a little bit. They continue to do extremely well with tourists. They continue to produce good beer that I no longer buy because I kind of, I I don't appreciate their corporate mentality of, you know, we positioned ourselves and we leveraged sentimentality and the belief in a movement, a, a belief in independence. And we got a better sale price because of that. And I think that's a little bit of what's happening with what Sean did in terms of the USL D3. Sure. And I, and I think, you know, it, it's not that there aren't toes being stepped on or people feeling hurt feelings in Greenville or even in Atlanta. But, I mean, and I think this is what makes the Silverbacks fans so insufferable is that <laughs> so many of the people that are the hardcore Silverbacks fans are the ones that are just like, I'm not having anything to do with Atlanta United because they came in and, you know, we're the only real soccer fans in the area. But, you know, it's just, it's a different level in Atlanta. And it's something that I kind of hope happens in Greenville that, yeah, the lower team, the lower division team did exist beforehand, but it's not like Major League Soccer came in and was like, hey, we're squashing you. We're going to put you out. And I think that's what's happening in Greenville is like there's no interest in this D3. And in fact, they, you know, the Irwins and and Chris Lewis have both told me we'd love to work with Greenville FC. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, and whether that's reciprocated or not isn't a reflection on anybody's standpoint or any not that either side's right or either side's wrong. They're just different approaches. And and that's fine. They don't have to work together for both teams to be successful in my mind. But yeah, I think, I think it's a thing where you gotta, this Chattanooga thing is going to be, it's going to be an interesting and very different test case than Greenville. I think Greenville is going to be a test case. I think if anything ever happens in Asheville, Asheville will be a totally different scenario as well. But I think in Chattanooga in particular, I'm interested just to see how this this Chattanooga pro soccer team tries to ingratiate themselves with the Chattanooga community. And honestly, I mean, I think 
the whole intent of having Sean Kelly come over is, hey, you've got somebody that's familiar to fans, that's been a part of this grassroots movement in Chattanooga. And I think maybe the hope is he's your he's your front guy to say, hey, look, this we everything that I have helped Chattanooga FC succeed with is the same thing I want to bring to Chattanooga Pro Soccer. I think with the quick reaction and the way, and, and honestly, I, I think I even said in the article, I don't, I think it was really shady the way that he kept working within the frameworks of Chattanooga FC, even knowing that this was on the table. I think that is really going to actually be a detriment to the to the Chattanooga Pro Soccer side. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, I think he still has an ownership stake in Chattanooga FC. So yeah, I mean, which is all, crazy. Yeah, there's all sorts of um, misgivings there. Well, Chris, we've I, we've chatted for a bit, and I think we could continue to chat. But I think we need to wrap this up. Um, maybe check back in in a couple of months. Yeah, no, that'd be great, man. All right. Well, thanks for hopping on with us. Hey, anytime, and thanks for uh, thanks for doing this. This will be a fun a fun co branded podcast. Thanks, everyone. Go CFC. Go CFC. Go CFC. Go CFC. Go CFC. You've been listening to the You're Smarter Than Us podcast, a proud member of the Soccer and Sweet Tea Network. Check us out on social media at your underscore smarter or shoot us an email at yoursmarterthanus at gmail.com.